chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Um, there's this divide in Christianity, at least in our, on our part of the planet, uh, as to what is uh, the more important thing to do. Uh, is it to preach the gospel or is it to demonstrate the gospel uh, by doing good works and acts of charity, and acts of mercy, and so on and so forth. And so there's this, there's these two camps, right? It's like, we're going to preach the gospel, and the other camp's like, uh, we kind of will, but we'll do it with our actions, and hope that our actions will uh, be properly interpreted by those who are receiving it as the gospel, okay? And there's this popular uh, quote that floats around churches and Christians that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, although there actually is no evidence he ever said this, just so you know. It's this one. He's, he maybe said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. So in other words, proclaiming the gospel by your example is a more virtuous thing than proclaiming it with your words. So don't worry about speaking, just just do gospel things. And if it's necessary, use your words. Now, gospel means good news. I'm not sure how you're supposed to uh, give good news to a person without speaking to them. I, I suppose if you were in need and I gave you something and said nothing, it would be sort of good news. But the gospel is not this thing you can just sort of, it's not a physical thing I can give you. I can't, I can't make the gospel, put it in a box and say, here's the gospel, open it and check it out. I can give you a Bible that, that contains what the gospel message is, but the physical resurrection of Jesus, I cannot physically give that to you. The quote, which is up on the screen here, totally undermines the whole testimony of the church. So here's where the divide is. Is it works or is it words? But the problem is that's an unnecessary divide. It's what's called a false dichotomy. It's not even worthy of thinking about. It's not either or, it's both. The church is responsible to preach the gospel with words. How else can you do it? How else will they hear it if you don't preach it? But, there are, but we're also responsible to live a virtuous life of holiness and good works. And we cannot emphasize one over the other. You can't divorce good works from the gospel word. It's not possible. And when we look at the life and works of Jesus, he was aware of the physical and spiritual needs of people, and he never sought to divorce the two. He never went to a place. Remember when he fed the, 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 the 5,000? Imagine if he would have said, you know, I'm not really in the good works. I'm just going to preach to you, and, and then, you know, God will save you, and then go get a job and get your own food. <laughs> you know, he didn't do that. He preached, and then they were hungry because he preached for a long time. And then by the time it was over, they were like, oh, wow, we haven't eaten in a while. We've been walking and following you, and hey, we're hungry. And so the disciples were like, well, what are we going to do with all these hungry people? We, he fed them. Miraculously, he fed them. But he wasn't, he wasn't um, against 
physical, physically helping somebody, put it that way. I heard a guy say once uh, recently, he said, I'm not into gimmicks to get people to listen to the gospel. So, oh, good. You know, that's good. You don't want to, uh, you know, use gimmicks. To g- if, if, if it's not the gospel, then if it's a gimmick, then it's not the gospel, right? But then he said, what if, but what if we offered food to people to listen to the word? Well, if that's a gimmick, then I guess Jesus used gimmicks. You know, like, for those who are like gospel preaching, like into gospel preaching, like we're, we're hard on it, sometimes we forget that there's nothing wrong with like meeting the needs of people. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with Jesus did it. It's okay to feed people and preach the gospel. It's not a gimmick. So in our passage this morning, a problem arises in the church that forces the apostles to choose between whether they would continue to preach the word or see to it that the widows in the church were fed. And in the end, we'll see that um, it wasn't one or the other. It was both and. So let's go ahead and open to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verses 1. That's it, just verse 1 for now. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The great commission of every Christian is what? What is it? Tell me. I don't know. Educate me, please. What is it? Alan, tell me what it is. What's the great commission? Make disciples. Thank you. It's to make disciples and teach all the nations. He's like, I'm glad I got that one right. (laughs) It's to teach the, (laughs) make disciples and teach the nations to follow everything Jesus said. Very simple commission. Was it complicated? Go make disciples, teach them. Go do what I did with you, with, uh, w- with the world, basically. That's what he told the, 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 the first apostles there. And there is great joy, we read in the Bible, when one sinner repents. And so there is also great joy amongst the people of God when a sinner repents. However, with rapid church growth also comes rapid church problems, right? Wherever people are, you're sure to have problems. You know, who said it? Biggie said, mo money, mo problems. Maybe, but the fact is, mo people, mo problems. Am I right? How many would welcome mo money in their life? Most people, and you might not have mo problems if you use it right. But if there's mo people, doesn't matter. There will be mo problems, guaranteed. So there's two groups of people here. That wasn't in my notes. That was just straight up street for you. I grew up in the villages, so there it is, showing up. (laughs) Riverside High School, or as they called it, Reeferside High School. Anyway, he shouldn't have said that. Okay, Uh, there's two groups of people we're reading about here, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So who were these people? Well, the Hellenists were those Jewish uh, individuals who grew up in Rome, but they spoke primarily Greek. While the Hebrews were those Jews who lived in the Holy Land, and they spoke primarily Hebrew or Aramaic. And it's said that many Jews who lived and worked outside of Israel would return in their uh, uh, latter years so that the father or the patriarch of the family could be buried in the Promised Land. So naturally, there would be a higher concentration of Hellenistic widows because as the father was dying or perhaps did die, They would come with the family, with his body, to bury him there, and then they would remain there. And so there were a higher concentration of Hellenistic widows 
than there were Hebrews. So you have two groups of people who grew up in different parts of the Roman Empire, now united in dwelling together as the church. But it wasn't all perfect. The Hellenistic widows were said to have been neglected in the daily distribution of food. And so the early church, they followed the same pattern of the synagogue. They would receive funds every week from the people. They would collect the funds, and then they would use those funds for different things. And one of the main things was to feed those in the community who couldn't feed themselves, such as a widow and so forth. So um, the Hebrews forgot about the Hellenistic widows, because, you know, they were just kind of, they always lived with the Hebrews, and when the Hellenists came into the, the, the you know, the church, it was kind of like, eh, whatever, we'll take care of our own, and then give the scraps to the, uh, the Greek-speaking Jews. So, you can feel and sense some culturally and, and some ethnic tensions starting to build here, and, and this was a serious issue that needed to be dealt with immediately. Uh, there was a sort of aura, if you would, of discontent and murmuring among the people, and, and that could be devastating to the movement of the gospel. So, last summer, uh, many of you well remember the conversation of race that arose. Racial injustice was sort of the center stage thing that everybody was talking about, and with that, the conversation of equal justice had a spotlight put on it. Um, but the whole conversation was sort of set upon sandy ground. Of course, the culture is pagan and lost, and so they don't have a biblical worldview. And so when they talk about these things, they talk about them in a pagan and lost sort of way. The Bible never actually mentions race. If you, re- if you read the thing, it, it never re- mentions race. The newer translation that, ha- that translates uh, the word race the word that's translated there is uh, nation. So it's a mistranslation. The word race is, is not in, in, the, in the ancient Greek or Hebrew language. It's, it's not a thing. So we need to understand the context of the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Uh, they didn't know anything about race. If you went to them and said, you know, you are a different r- species or race or whatever than me, they'd be like, what are you talking about? We're, we're one we're one blood. We believe Adam and Eve and Noah and his sons and everybody was dispersed from those people. When they saw each other, there was a mutual understanding that they were all the sons and daughters of Adam. Their worldview was one that said there was one race of humanity created by one God that's visibly manifested in different nations and languages and cultures. So was the neglect of the Hellenists discrimination? Yes, of course it was. But it was not discrimination based on race, since they didn't even know what that was. They only knew of one race of man, mankind, from Adam. It was discrimination based on cultural identification and language. You might say, well, that's kind of the same thing as race, isn't it? No, it's not. Fundamentally, race is a Darwinian idea. It's, 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 it's based on evolutionary theory of, of our origins. Evolution tells us we have evolved over time and that the different races we see are just evolution happening simultaneously. And so Africans evolved at one time and then Europeans and you see the different colors and, and facial structures and these are all different 
veins of, of evolution. That's not biblical. A biblical worldview says we all came from Adam and Eve. We all have one origin, namely God, who created Adam and then Eve, and then told, told them to go multiply, from whom all men and women have been dispersed across the face of the land. Evolutionary race theory is a lie because it immediately divides us into unbiblical categories like race. So why is this this distinction important? Because if we're to properly care for the vulnerable, which we believe the church is is, is mandated to to do that, care for the vulnerable and and, and speak up for, for justice and so forth, if we're to do that, we need to biblically view the vulnerable. One race of man manifesting itself in a, a myriad of different shades of colors and structures and, and expressions and languages, but one origin, one God who created all, who caused humans to spread around the world from two people, Adam and Eve. And so the church faces an early controversy of discrimination. Not much different than what was happening in the summer and you might say, is it still happening? One group neglecting another, one group feeling taken advantage of, or one group saying, hey, uh, you're, you're discriminating. Hey, and we're not getting our piece of the pie. Hey, what's going on? And they're right to do that because they were. They were being discriminated against. But the way we solve this problem will be determined how we view the people in the problem. If we view them as equal image bearers of God from the same race, then our response will be just and balanced based upon what we believe. If the conversation is framed the way it's framed in the culture, it will always be us against them. It will always be they're different than me somehow because they're a different race, even if we don't say it. When you put people in these categories, you're automatically dividing them. Why do you think... <laughs> Why do you think racism hasn't been eradicated? Why do you think it hasn't been solved yet? It's been, you know, it's been a while. And with all the money and attention being put on this issue, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. It's actually getting worse. The more people are saying, don't be racist, it seems the more racist stuff is happening. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Because it's not being dealt with biblically. It's because we're dealing in secular false categories. Only Jesus is the solution. I mean, the church is, well, the church should be past this. The church was past this like after Acts 6. Some might argue after Peter's vision even. So maybe they were kind of past it, but then Peter's vision, he was like, oh, I get it everyone's welcome in the kingdom of God. Okay, thanks, Lord. You know, so, like, we should have been past, we are, you know, biblically, if we have a biblical worldview, we're past this. Paul said, there's no Jew or Greek. You know, it, we're all one in Christ. So the church should be the one place in the world where people go, they got it, they understand, they got the solution to this thing. In this case, we have widows who speak Greek being neglected. So the church had to deal with it. Greek-speaking daughters of Adam, Greek-speaking human beings, Greek-speaking image bearers. 
So to recap the problem here, the Hebrews are neglecting the Hellenistic widows and the distribution. People are con- discontent and complaining, and, and, the, and the apostles are hearing these complaints. But they already have enough on their plate, the apostles, to do. Now they have to deal with the murmuring of the people. But they realize they can't just ignore this thing because it's injustice. You can't just sweep injustice under the rug under the guise of, well, we got to preach still. Well, what are you preaching? How are you going to preach the gospel while there's injustice and you're just like, ah, just this injustice is bothering me, so I'm going to preach the gospel instead. doesn't make any sense. So what do they do? They meet up and they come up with a solution. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 2 to 4. In the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So early estimates uh, say that the church at the time here consisted of about in excess of 20,000 people. So how in the world can 12 guys preach the word, pray, minister to the church, reach out to the lost world, deal with persecution on top of it all, and distribute food to all the widows in need? Can't do it. The task is too large for just 12 men. So they had to make a choice. And and what they decided to do was they could either rearrange their priorities and become inwardly focused, or they could delegate the responsibility to those who are apt to the job. So they chose the latter. They said, we can't do this by ourselves. We can't stop preaching the word. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. We can't stop doing that. That's not a, that, that's not a, um, a possibility. That's not even on the table here. But we could get others to do it. We could delegate the responsibility. So they had enough faith in God to say, we can't do it all. So guys, pick out seven men who have good reputations who we can trust with the money, right? Don't just give it to the first seven who are like, we could do it because there's money involved and they might just be ripping us off. So pick out seven men of good repute to do this job. But we will continue to preach the word and to pray and to minister. It's not that caring for this internal injustice was not important. It was important to that. It was just too important for the apostles to try to do it all by themselves because, you know, it would have been done poorly. So it needed to be delegated in order to be taken care of in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And sometimes when we're faced with a decision between two options, we become blinded to the reality that those two options are a false dichotomy. Now, a false dichotomy involves... I guess the best way to put it is two options, opposing views or outcomes that um, seem to be the only possibilities when in fact they're not the only possibilities. It's like what I do with my children, right? When I want them to sit in their chair and eat, I give them two options. They don't know there's many more. (laughs) See, listen, here's your options. You can sit and eat or I could pick you up and put you in the chair. What do you want? Oh, I'll do it myself. Okay, see? But they could have ran away. They could have said, I'm not hungry. They could, but no, I gave them two options, and they think there's only two. Works out in my favor. Eventually, they might catch on. But I'm giving them false dichotomies all day. In this case, we have a false dichotomy. You can either 
uh, you know, here's another one. You can either pay your bills or you can help the homeless, right? People think, oh, I got no money. How can I help the homeless? Well, wait a minute. You can do both. You can pay your bills and help homeless people if you want. Why? Because you don't need money to help somebody, right? There's other things of value, such as time, such as talents, efforts. Ask yourself when you're faced with a dichotomy, two choices, is, is, are these choices valid or are there more? I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing here. You can pay your bills and you can volunteer somewhere. Simple stuff. A lot of times Christians can put the preaching of the gospel above the care of the vulnerable or we could be so focused on caring for the vulnerable that we neglect the word of God. But the apostles demonstrate here to us something extremely important, how they handled the situation. It's not that it's one or the other. It's that you could do both. Both can be done well. We all have gifts. We all have skills that God has given us for the service of others. And these gifts, they have a tendency to swing us to one extreme or the other. So, you know, maybe I like to preach a lot. So I might just say, okay, I'm really good at that, or I think I'm good at that, or I like to do that, so I'm just not going to do anything else, right? I do my part. I preach. You do the rest. Well, that's, that's a false dichotomy, because I could do other things too. I might not be as good as you at those things, but I could do them still. So the uh, solution is to put gifted people to work who God has wired for the need. There needs to be a godly balance here. Not just, I'm good at one thing, so I'm going to just do one thing. It's also important to note here that this was an internal issue. And in the day we live especially, I think it's probably wise for us to start setting money aside for each other. Uh, it's good and okay to help the poor outside our fellowship, which we, we've done and we do. But we need to first take care of the household of faith. And with increased censorship and, and fining and pastors in jail and, and all this crazy stuff, ch churches, I think, should start putting money aside to help our own when we get in a pickle. We need to have each other's backs. We also have widows and those in need. It's time to take a more balanced approach. Not that we haven't been. I think we have. For, for the most part, but uh, uh, God has led us to help those outside and those inside, and I'm grateful for the generosity of the saints uh, that's equipped us to, to justly distribute to those in need without neglecting the preaching of the gospel, which is the point here. We must never neglect the preaching for the care of the vulnerable, but we must never neglect the vulnerable just to preach. It has to be balanced. Truth and mercy go together. Truth without mercy is cruel. It is. So, mercy, on the other hand, without truth, is like giving someone a back rub on their way to hell. <laughs> it's like, let me be really nice to you, you know, but, uh, uh, oh, sorry, too late. No, it's cruel. Both are cruel. The church is responsible to care and to preach. We have to do both and not neglect one or the other. Verse uh, number 5 to verse number 6 here. Acts chapter 6. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, 
and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Um, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the solution the apostles came up with, they pleased everyone. They go, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, okay, good. Now everybody, you know, a fair distribution, and it's, it's, it's going to be equal, equal balances, just balances. And, and the apostles are also freed up to pray and to preach, and it was a win-win situation. Uh, after the people chose the seven men, they set them before the apostles. They were appointed to the duty. The apostles laid their hands on them. They prayed for them. And, and many believe these men were the first deacons of the church, those set apart and commissioned to oversee the, you know, the mercy ministries and the administrative things and things like that. So we see some organization and some structure now beginning to take form. Uh, a lot of people are being saved. The Lord is adding to the church those whom he's saving, and, and they're beginning to be seen, this movement, as independent from Judaism. It's starting to take its own sort of form now. The qualifications for these servants was important. They had to be of good repute, full of the Spirit. And I'm convinced that most of the worst tragedies we see in the household of faith could have been avoided if certain people were not permitted to be in per positions of authority. A position like this requires honesty, integrity, transparency. These people are dealing with money. They're dealing with the vulnerable. And too many times we've seen church scandals around money, around abuse. And these scandals, they devastate churches. They stain the witness of Christ. And there needs to be a standard which we have. So why, then, do these things happen? Well, because we have neglected the standard and created our own. We said, well, you know, if you're going to be in leadership, like when I went to Bible college, we study the Bible. It's called Bible college. You should expect to study the Bible at a place like that. But, when I got out of Bible college, it was like different. You know, going for a pastoral job, which seems like, anyways, um, being interviewed for those things, and like they would give you the qualifications list. Here's what you need to, to meet in order to kind of work at this church or whatever. And none of the qualifications were biblical. N not even one. Like, th there's literally a list of qualifications that Paul gives us in several books. Okay, it's not just one time. It's like he wrote it in several books so that we wouldn't, I guess, miss it, but we did still. There's the list, bingo, bango, qualifications. And then when, you, when, when I received the qualif, it was like Bible degree, um, you know, good speaking, administrative, uh, blah, 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 all this stuff. And I'm like, bro, there's not a single qualification that's biblical here. And then we wonder why stuff happens in leadership. The cause of Christ is too important to just be haphazard about who's running the thing. It's our responsibility to care for the vulnerable, to preach the gospel. Therefore, part of the responsibility is to appoint individuals who are fit for those jobs. And it's not like we have to come up with the qualifications, right? We don't need to sit and have a meeting and go, well, what, you know, what would a, a pastor or a deacon or, or you name it, 
what should they be like? You know, what, what, what should their character be like? What should their skill set be like? We don't even need to figure it out. It's already there for us. We just need to sort of walk in it. And so that's what the, the apostles did. They said, okay, here's the qualifications. Pick out seven at the time. We think seven, I mean, that's, you could talk about that number all day, but they decided seven, pick them out, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, good repute, and set them before the job that was needed to be done. So how has God gifted you? Now here's the question. Um, he has, okay, that's the thing. You, you might think, well, he hasn't, but he has. Um, so pray on that. Are you more easily drawn to mercy ministries, like feeding the poor, caring for children, visiting the lonely, and so forth? Are you more naturally drawn to ministries of the word, teaching, defending the faith, sharing the gospel with strangers? Has God given you a passion, passion for a certain subset group of people? Um, I don't know. Certain, you have certain hobbies you're passionate about. Think about these things. It's important for us to know where we're gifted so we can begin to use those God-given gifts to serve him and his people. Super important not to waste your gifts. I'm more drawn to ministries of the word. I love to teach the Bible. I love to defend the faith. I love to get into arguments with people. I love to, uh, you know, just, just, get in, just go, go deep. And, like, I'm not offended easily, and we can do this. Maybe you're not. Maybe you don't like confrontation. I don't like confrontation either, honestly. But when it comes to, like, confrontation about the Word of God, I kind of like that. <laughs> but if it's confrontation about anything else, I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to deal with that. But if we're talking, because maybe because I think it's something worthy to be confronted about, right? So I'm like, okay, I can fight for that because it's something worthy. But if it's something silly, then I feel like this is a waste of time. That's just my personal bias. But um, so determine ways how you can begin to serve and bless people with your gifts in Jesus' name while also not neglecting the word of God in that service. So the church is responsible to care for the vulnerable, to preach the gospel. It can't be either or. It has to be both. And together, we can empower and encourage one another to do both in a way that upholds the high standard and integrity that honors God in it all. Um, I won't go down a rabbit trail just made a split decision there. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So when the church is balanced and its ministry doesn't cave in on itself due to the problems associated with people, then it continues to multiply. The temptation is to shift priorities to neglect things when problems arrive and arise. And when we do this, gifted people are forced to sit around and let the professionals do the ministry. Okay? Notice the air quotes, professionals, ministry. There are no professional ministers. doesn't exist. The point is this. If you're a Christian, you are a minister by default. The only way the word of God increases in our city is if every Christian begins to take seriously his or her call to ministry. It's time for us to stop viewing church as a place to consume religious fast food and start to view it as a place to contribute spiritual life. Of course, sometimes you need to consume that life too. Give and take. The word of God increases and the disciples multiply because they stayed true to their responsibilities and didn't waver in the face of of a, 
problem. The word of God must be preached, and the widows also need their food. Injustice also must be done. And, and so many people view organization as something bad, right? Not realizing the Holy Spirit inspired the organization. And so many people will say, I don't like organized religion. Well, what would you prefer, that we be disorganized? Would you, would you prefer just chaos? Do, would you like chaotic religion better or something? Those who don't like organized religion are usually the first to complain when they get neglected in the distribution. Am I wrong? The mission of the church is too important to remain stationary. The responsibility to care for one another and preach the gospel is too weighty of a matter to not take seriously. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Essentially, we must love one another in truth. Love without truth is not love. You can't divide God. God is love. Right? The Bible says God is love. The Bible also says Jesus is the truth. These are things he is, part of his essence. You can't divide love and truth because you can't divide God. He's both. Love, care for the vulnerable, truth, preach the gospel. It's not one or the other. It's both because God is both. And God is both loving and truthful at the same time. But sometimes that truth might not feel loving. doesn't matter. It's still loving. Your feelings don't determine what true love is. Regardless of what you hear. Well, it doesn't feel loving. Well, what, since when is love a feeling? Is there a song or something that says that? Is there? No. No, there's one that's like, love is not, a, may, maybe not. Someone write that song. <laughs> love is not a feeling. I, I'm not sure that it would sell well, but love is not a feeling. Well, I don't feel loved. What are you talking about? Maybe you don't feel respected. That might be there, but, but love is not a feeling. You can't feel, you can feel the effects of love, but uh, love is an action. Love is a, a person. It's God. And, 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 and out of that love, come actions and truth. It's all one thing. And with great growth, we see, comes great problems. The widows were neglected, and this left the apostles in the jam. They thought either they have to give up the preaching to distribute the food or neglect the widows for preaching the word. Okay, here's the thing. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> it was a good point, too. I hate when that happens. They recognized it was a false dichotomy, so they came up with a solution that would free them to preach and to pray and to do the things that they were doing and also ensure that the widows received what they had to receive to be fed. God cares a lot about widows and the orphans and things like that. He says over and over in the Bible to care for them, and so so it's kind of a big deal. So they appointed the gifted uh, men that they had in their group there to see to it that everything ran smoothly with the distribution, which freed them up to be witnesses to the word. And so the word of God continued to increase. The church worked together, con contributing and consuming. And the good news of the gospel moved them forward into act action. And Jesus gives us the strength and the ability to share his word and to care for the vulnerable. So the charge this morning is simple. Don't waste your life just being a religious consumer. Don't waste, because you're missing out on so, so much of what God 
can do not only through you, but in you as well. It's easy to be a religious consumer. It's easy to be a consumer, period, of anything. You just take in and take in and take in. But it's a waste. Don't waste your time. Use your time and your gifts to contribute something to the world that God would get glory for. And don't think it has to be grand in the sense that we talk about grandness, like in a worldly sense. If you don't end up preaching to a thousand people or you don't end up starting a feeding program that cures the world of hunger, don't think you failed. You've only failed when you do nothing. You only fail when you don't do something to give God glory. If you do something that gives God, God glory and, and, and it impacts one person, you've done more than the one who's done nothing to give God. You've done more than the one who started a program that, got, that gave God no glory that, that fed a thousand people. Because the world isn't about you. It's not about us. It's about God. And if God gets glory, then that is the purpose of your life. And when you die, you can leave behind something that goes with you. Your money doesn't go with you. Your clothes don't go with you. The only thing that goes with you is what you've done for the Lord, is what gave him glory. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So don't waste your life being a religious consumer. Christ died for sinners, and he rose to give eternal life. That is too important for us to be... Um, neglectful of, or to be, what's the word, uh, apathetic about. The cause of Christ is too important, it's too weighty, not to give our life to it. What else are you going to give your life to, honestly? Think about it. What else are you doing with your life? It's, it, it, it's, it's, it might be fun, it might be kind of important, but at the end of the day, it's not really that important. I could give my life to a hundred different things. But I'm at a point where it's like, why? What is a profit? Who cares? Oh, oh, you're going to build a skyscraper. Who cares? It'll come down eventually. It's all going to rot eventually. I'm going to accumulate a bunch of money. Who cares? It's not going with you. you know, the Bible tells us that uh, a man accumulates a great wealth, but it goes to somebody else when he dies. <clears throat> accumulate great wealth, and then you die, and the government takes half of it. Good job. <laughs> You really contributed to, to the world, didn't you? Happened to, it happened to uh, someone I know. Won't name names because it'll go on the internet, but guy had some wealth, died. Government took half of it. Why? Because they can't. Would have been better for him to give it all to the work of the ministry of the gospel and then die because at least that could go on and do something that accomplishes an eternal thing. But instead, they accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and then die and then nothing happens. It gets wasted. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Give it for the cause of Christ. Give it to help others in his name. Give it to preach the gospel in his name. Give it for his cause. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our lives and for the time you've given us. In this life, we don't know how many ticks on the clock you have allotted to each one of us. 
but we thank you for each one, and we pray that you would help us to redeem the time um, for your glory. Help us to, and guide us to see and to know what to do, how to do it, what to use our finances for, what to use our gifts for, what to use our time for. Uh, Lord, let us just uh, be as those apostles uh, we read about in Acts, who they saw a problem, it was an injustice, but it didn't cause them to waver from what you wanted them to do. They knew that you wanted them to go and preach and to make disciples. They saw a problem, and they did not waver from your mission. Even though it was an important thing, even though you cared deeply about establishing justice in your church in this area, they still said, okay, God has a commission for us. We cannot waver from it, but we must deal with this. Let us also be that wise and that discerning um, so that you would get the glory and so that your word would continue to prosper, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, thank you, saints, for being here to worship the king. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you, I'm sure, sometime during the week. If not, next Sunday, Lord willing, Christ is faithful and good. Have a great